Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring performance management in government. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. There's an old saying that if you don't know where you're going, you will never get there. This is truly the case in managing government programs. If you do not have a performance framework which includes your goals and objectives in place, you will not be able to track where you're heading and agency progress towards achieving those goals will not be met. The task of improving government performance looks daunting. Governments are complex, multi-layered organizations, and not surprisingly, government effectiveness and efficiency have many dimensions. As such, government leaders need a multi-dimensional approach if they wish to create a government that works better, faster, and more efficiently. Such an approach should be comprehensive, covering all aspects of government performance. What keeps the government from being as effective as it can be or should be? How can performance management systems help government perform better? What more needs to be done? Today I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Professor Praja Trivedi, author of Performance Management in Government, a primer for leaders. Praja, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. So before we delve into specific initiatives and your book and the insights of your book, I'd like to provide some context uh, for our listeners. Um, Would you briefly discuss the history and mission of the Commonwealth Secretariat? Thank you very much, uh, Michael. Uh, The Commonwealth Secretariat, as you know, represents 53 countries. It's a multilateral organization, and its birth is associated with the birth of countries. As the British Empire was winding down, uh, they, I think, came up with a brilliant idea, which is not to lose connections completely, and therefore they decided this would be a wonderful opportunity to create a family of Commonwealth countries, which are all former colonies of the British in one way or another. And so it's the modern Commonwealth really started with India becoming independent in 1947. Till then, it was in fact referred to as a colonial office. And when India became independent, I think our prime minister put his foot down and said, we will not want to be associated with anything which has the word colonial. And hence, in 1949, there was a London Declaration which marks the birth of the modern Commonwealth. And then the next big milestone, I would say, would be 1965. Till then, believe it or not, Commonwealth was operated out of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, which was one of the divisions of the British Foreign Affairs Ministry. In 1965, the country said, that's not good. Let us have an independent secretariat. And so the Commonwealth Secretariat was really uh, came into being in 1965. So it's not a very old organization. 
So that's the origin of Commonwealth. And since then, of course, as countries have become independent, its size has grown and it has also shrunk. Commonwealth believes in certain values, democracy, peace, nonviolence. And if you don't stick to those values, uh, membership is not guaranteed. And therefore, countries go in, come out. Rwanda, for instance, is one of the, the newest countries which has come back into the Commonwealth. So operationally, how is the Secretariat organized? Uh, what exactly does it do? And um, perhaps you can uh, give us some a sense of, uh, of how it's funded and such. Wonderful. I mean, that's... Uh, quite straightforward. Commonwealth is really an organization which aspires to have mutually respectful, resilient, peaceful, and prosperous relationship among Commonwealth countries. That's really our goal, which is respectful, resilient, so as well as peaceful. This is very, very important and democratic. So that's really our big goal. It is funded. There are three main sources. One, there is a levy on each country, which is like a membership fee. And it depends on your GDP and certain criteria. So it's a formula-based thing. Everybody has to pay that amount. So if you're a large country, you pay more. If your GDP is great, you pay more. So it's related to certain parameters uh, which are considered fair by the membership. They've all agreed to that. So that's a tax or a fee that you have to pay upfront. Then there is a contribution that you make to what is called Commonwealth Fund for Technical Cooperation, which really funds a lot of activities that go on. There is no formula for that, but you need to contribute to it to benefit from it. You can't say I'm not contributing to it and yet benefit. So you need to contribute to the Commonwealth Fund for Technical Cooperation. That's another kitty in which uh, funds go in, and depending on the demand. It's completely demand-driven. We have no agenda of our own. Countries come up and say we need help in in election monitoring, we need help in in uh, sustainable development goals and implementation, and Commonwealth then responds with technical assistance in those areas. Then there is another fund which is called Extra Budgetary Resources, EBRs. Then organizations, countries can decide to pay in addition to these other two funds. And for instance, but they are for specific purposes. For instance, Australia gave half a million U.S. dollars for uh, climate change. It was funded specifically that you will create a climate finance access hub. And that is the point of these extra budgetary resources. They are tied to a specific project. How many folks are in the Secretariat? Right. So Secretariat basically has three divisions. One deals with governance, peace, and democracy. That's one area of governance. Then there is another one uh, which I was the senior director for that and headed that division. It's, uh, it was called Economic, Youth, and Sustainable Development, which, of course, is a very large division. These are just three words. That included gender. It included national debt. It included climate. It included sports. It included health. It included education and economic policy in small states. So it's, it's, it was like a mini World Bank. Then there is a third one, which is trade, oceans, and natural resources. So these are the three directorates in which we classify our work. Of course, within that, we do 
large variety of uh, projects, programs, policies, and and it's all demand-driven, what countries decide. Primarily, our agenda is set by the Commonwealth heads of government. When they meet every two years, they decide, and it is based on consensus, and they decide what as a group, these are prime ministers, the last one was in London in 2018, and all of them met all the prime ministers and presidents and decided these are our priorities. And then the secretariat is supposed to respond to those priorities. That's what we are. We are the vehicle of, for the policy, the heads of the government to implement things which they decide is important. So there's, um, it's not that we can, can come up with, we can only suggest they may agree or may not agree. So what about your role? Uh, what are your duties and responsibilities vis-a-vis the uh, secretariat? Well, as I said, till recently I was the senior director, so I was the head of the Economic, Youth, and Sustainable Development Directorate. Secretary General has very kindly asked me to continue as her special representative, uh, which basically means that I helped Secretary General in focusing, moving forward, and implementing areas of her priority, which could be any one of the directorates. So... um since you've taken on and in your transition um, at the Secretariat, what ha- what's some of the challenges you've faced and what has surprised you most in your roles? As you know, Michael, I was with the World Bank for 15 years. And so I have a good sense of multilateral organization. As uh, when I was in the government of India, I was also involved with the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons. OPCW, I was the chairman for the National Authority for Chemical Weapons, and I represented India in the OPCW, which is another multilateral disarmament organization. Don't ask me why <laughs> an economist would be doing this. That's a whole other interview we can have. But but I was asked to do that, and as a good public servant, I followed the orders. But that taught me a lot about multilateral organization, my experience in the World Bank and with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. But Commonwealth Secretariat did surprise me because it is completely different. I mean, the love and affection. And then now I can see why there is a rationale for having an organization of this kind. When we meet, as opposed to other meetings, there's only one language required, which is English. We all speak English. So there's no need for this five languages of the United Nations, which are there in all other organizations. You have to have simultaneous translation here. No. We understand each other because our institutions are similar. We have Westminster form of government. We understand when someone says cabinet secretary, what it means, which is very different from in many other forms of government where it could mean, you know, a minister, cabinet secretary, would mean that. I mean, in the U.S., it would mean a ministerial political appointee. Mm-hmm. But in, in the most Westminster form of governments, that means first among equals in the public service. So you're a public servant, but you're first, you're the senior most public servant who is actually truly the secretary to the cabinet. He sits and takes notes in the cabinet, the only civil servant allowed into the cabinet. So, so we understand, mm-hmm. and that's why in fact, we have done a study. Because of all these advantages, we, when we trade with each other within the Commonwealth, we call it the Commonwealth Advantage, Trade Advantage, there is a 19% cost difference vis-a-vis other countries. Really? So that's really what makes it unique. 
in terms of challenges, they are the same as in any government, any public sector organization, which is to say that you have to be very, how do you manage public sector organization? Hopefully we'll talk we'll more talk about, about that. that. Yeah. So they're pretty much similar to any public organization. You, you mentioned um, your current roles, but what, can you tell us a little bit, what's your background? You mentioned you're an economist, but what, what else do you do? Well, uh, I am a teaching, you preaching are. economist. I, uh, you know, this past summer, I taught at the Kennedy School of Government, which I have done for, you know, since 1979, except okay. for a few years. I have continuously taught, and they use one of my books as a textbook, and which is a great honor. And I, But in addition to that, I have really, uh, I am an academic, if you were to ask me, because that's really how I started after my PhD from Boston University. I was teaching here in the United States. Till I went to India in 1986-87, I was offered a chaired professorship at the Indian Institute of Management, which was arguably one of the world's best management institutes, but definitely India's. And I thought, that's it. Uh, you know, got a chaired professorship at 1987, and I would be fine. But um, there were other plans that God had for me, and I was then invited. I was a sort of always felt like giving suggestions. Some people might say <laughs> I was a critic of the government, but I, they asked me to come and join the government. They said, if you think it's that simple, can you try, try it. doing it from inside? And I became economic advisor to the government of India. And that was at a very critical time when, in 1991, when the reforms were starting, and I was associated with the public, sec public enterprise reforms. Then the World Bank asked me uh, while I was working uh, that would I like to join them, and I joined them. Uh, from Government of India, I went to the World Bank, and while I was there, the Government of India again said, would you like to come back at the highest level in the government, which is a permanent secretary to the Government of India. I was in the Cabinet Secretariat in the Prime Minister's office, and my job was, and I was invited to as Secretary Performance Management to set up a system to hold 80 departments of Government of India accountable for delivering results and report back to the Prime Minister on how they are doing. So that was essentially where I was. After I retired from the Government of India, I joined as again as a professor in the Indian School of Business. I was faculty chair for the management program in public policy. I did that till the Commonwealth Secretariat asked me to join them, and I was delighted and excited to join and, and, and continue with yeah. my journey. You have an interesting perspective here. You're an academic, and you're also a practitioner. So, you know, given both perspectives, given both experiences, uh, what are the characteristics of, of an effective leader, and what are some of the leadership principles you subscribe to? Well, clarity of purpose is the most important. I mean, I think a leader must have a cause. A leader without a cause is like an organization without a mission or vision. I mean, you've got to have a cause. Then leadership then follows. It's it's not that you are a leader in search of a cause. Yeah. Uh, leadership comes once you believe in a cause. So you've got to have a cause. But it's also very important that you have the communication skills. Mm -hmm. In addition to the technical skills, you do need technical skills. I don't think an effective leader can simply say, well, we will do this, but I don't know how we're going to do it. So a leader got to have a vision, and you need to have the skills to deliver that. 
And above all, you must be a good communicator. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's why I think uh, teachers and professors are often very good at public policy because in classrooms, that's what we do. We have a clear objective. We know how to deliver that. And we need to communicate because our feedback depends on that, your evaluation. So teachers have those skills. And if we are able to successfully transfer them into public policy area, then you can do what a good teacher does in the classroom. What keeps the government from being as effective as it can be or should be? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Professor Praja Trivedi, author of Performance Management in Government, a Primer for Leaders. So, Praja, on its face, the task of improving government performance um, looks daunting. Uh, but you point out there are three, um, three key facts that uh, need to be kept in mind. What are those? Well, it's really when you look around and you close your eyes, Michael, you feel that uh, all the governments are conspiring to tell you the same story. It looks so similar, frankly. And, you know, they'll say we are unique and we are different. But when they relate their challenges and their problems, they look similar. So in a sense, the first thing I have noticed is that many of the problems involved in managing government across countries are a result of a few underlying causes. So people put it in different ways. But there are just a couple of causes which are repeated over and over again. So, so it's not like everyone has a unique, unique problem. problem. You know, they say it in a unique way. They may not say in exact words, but they're basically repeating the same problems which you observe across the countries. The second is that even the causes of poor performance are uh, similar. And third, of course, the solutions are very similar too. You find that countries that have really solved and overcome these challenges are using basically similar approaches. So there's a great deal of similarity, even though we may speak different languages, our GDPs are different, we are in different regions of the world, but there is a huge amount of similarity. So I have decided to focus on those similarities mm-hmm. in both in identifying the uh, problems and as well as finding solutions. In your experience, what keeps government from being as effective as it can be or should be? And what are the typical causes of poor government performance? So you would find that one of the main, the, the, you know, irrespective of where you are, you can be sure they will always come back to this cause, which is that government departments have too many people supervising them. Mm -hmm. Everybody feels they have a right to supervise a government department, whether it's the parliament, whether it is the uh, controller and auditor general, whether it is the administrative ministries, the regulators, the press even feels they have a right to supervise the government department and the vigilance agencies. So... Now, that should not be a problem because, after all, in the private sector, you have thousands of shareholders who also supervise their firm. The the difference between the public and the private sector is, whereas in the private sector, they all have the same objective. 
all the shareholders are focused on just increasing their share value and making sure the company does well, not only in the short run, but in the long run. So they have very similar objectives, all of them. In the public sector, unfortunately, everyone has a different objective. Somebody wants political objectives to be met. Someone wants non-political objectives. Somebody wants efficiency. Somebody wants equity. And as a result, the government officials really do not know what is really expected of them. If they run fast, they are told, look, this is not a dash, it's a marathon, take it easy. If they jump high, they are told, look, this is not a high jump, it's a broad <laughs> jump. So as a result, whatever you do, someone is calling you out. And so they decide, look, I'm just going to follow the rules, survive in the system, and if there is a collateral benefit to the country, then so be it. But I'm not going to go out and try, and that's not desirable. So that's cause that you can be sure you find, that fuzziness of goals and objectives. So if you don't know what race you're running, then you, there's no chance that you will win that race. That's one. The other problem that you see all the time is the not me syndrome. <laughs> you know, where anything happens, they'll say, it's not me. It's someone else is doing it. It's not me. So in the government, it's always pointing the fingers. Mm -hmm. So these are the two big problems. And you find most of the problems, if you mention to me, they will be symptoms of these two underlying causes. So, you know, in your in your book, you have a, it's a compilation of a really very thoughtful and insightful articles. And you've had a lot of experience. I, I want to go back to 2009. Uh, as I understand it, you were responsible for the design and implementation of the performance monitoring and evaluation system uh, implemented in the Indian government. What lessons have you learned or did you learn from that experience? And what should have been done? What can be, what more can be done? Well, that was a job that I was given and I was not experimenting. I had been a long-time believer in this cause and uh, so much so that most people in the government would be wanting to join the World Bank. I actually resigned to join the government of India, you know, taking a massive cut in salary because I believed in this cause. And uh, right from my PhD in some way or the other, I was uh, preparing for this job. So I came to this job with very uh, clear sense of what is possible, what is not possible. But in short, I should say that at the end, when I retired, I had exceeded any expectation that I had at the beginning what was possible. It was way beyond what I was able to achieve. So I'm a very big believer that if you have clarity of what you want to do and you're doing reasonable things, you're not just trying to pulling a fast one and saying, this is, believe, trust me, this is, you're saying this is common sense. Mm -hmm. you, tell me which part of it you have problem with. And with common sense, very few people can argue mm -hmm. because this is so obviously true. So therefore, that was the approach. And I joined, uh, it is true that we designed a system based on all the experience I had had till that point. I had worked in a large number of countries. Uh, the first time where I had applied this methodology in, was in Costa Rica oh. at the request of the president of Costa Rica. So, and you know, I started my journey with the public enterprises, just state-owned enterprises, where I'd used the methodology, which was, you know, uh, the credit has to go to my professor, Professor Leroy P. Jones of the Boston University, who was a pioneer in that. I had learned a lot from him, but where we differed was that he felt it it is best applied only to state-owned enterprises, okay. and I then took it to to the other uh, area of which is government. Mm -hmm. so, and then the first country where we used this was Costa Rica. 
where we call, you know, Jose Maria Figueres was the president, and it was easy. It was, again, demand-driven. He had asked the World Bank. I was already in the World Bank. He asked the World Bank why we can't do this. And the reason he asked was because he was my student at Harvard. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) And so it made it a really successful uh, implementation because, you know, you know that there's full political commitment and clarity behind it. It was demand-driven. I was asked to go to Costa Rica, even though I was working in other parts of the world. And it worked. And after that... We knew that this could work in government and then many other countries. So when I came to India, it was based on that experience. Mm -hmm. And what we implemented uh, was quickly adopted by 80 departments and 17 states in the Indian Union. There are about 28 states. They are... They span the entire political spectrum. So it wasn't that I was able to force them. They were not same parties. I mean, you you know, the entire range of political values and uh, views were represented. But they all agreed that this is what we need. And therefore, it turned out to be quite a success. I could ask you a question around the summary uh, of the evolution of performance management in government. But I'd like to connect that to, you know, the idea that performance management is in vogue and there seems to be no consensus around the meaning of performance, quote unquote. How do you define performance or how have you? And more importantly, How can a government executive who is pursuing the same thing you've done, um, but in a different context, uh, how can it ensure that performance management is more than, say, performance measurement? What are some of the conditions that are essential for that? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Performance, uh, the word could mean many things. There is ex-ante performance, which is I give you uh, an objective and then I hold you to account. That's one kind of performance. Uh, the other is that I come back as an auditor and say, look, Michael, I don't know what your objectives were. You, you know, you were building a road. This road ain't good enough, right? You may say, look, I was only given this money and I was told to finish in uh, half the time and therefore this road is the best possible. I said, no. So that is ex post evaluation, where I come back as a researcher. I don't talk to you. What were your constraints? I said, this road should have been like this. So that's an ex post. And then there could be partial. Then lots of people go and say, well, I'm going to look at skill development. Well, that's a partial indicator of a ministry of labor, which does a lot of other things. And you say, I'm going to look only at that. So that's like saying, you know, you focus in one particular area, You might get something done there, but the inefficiency travels to the other parts of the organization. So that's as opposed to a comprehensive approach. So you can have a comprehensive approach. So you can also have an approach which focuses on the performance of the manager versus an approach which focuses on the performance of the organization. Very different things. You as a manager were given $500,000 to set up a big hospital. Suddenly your budget was cut in half Mm -hmm. and you could only do you. But in spite of being cut in half, you were able to deliver more than half. Mm -hmm. Now, you as a manager have done a great job because your money was budget was cut in half and yet you delivered more than half. That if you just look at the organization, you'd say, look, you were supposed to do that, but you didn't do it. Whatever the reason. So you need to focus. So managerial performance is really organizational performance adjusted for force majeure and exogenous circumstances. That's 
So there are a variety of performance. So my definition, which is the working definition, and that's why it has succeeded, is simply the difference between the promises you make at government department and the delivery. That's performance. Whatever you say. I didn't force you to say it, but you said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this at the beginning of the year. At the end of the year, we simply ask, sir, what have you done compared to the promises you made? The difference between rhetoric and action is really the true measure of performance in my view. And I want to dig a little deeper into indicators and performance indicators. And you point out in one of your articles in the book that you divide it into two broad categories, lagging indicators and leading. And I always wanted to get a conversation around that. Would you tell us more about the categories and how do they differ and on what levels do they complement each other? Well, the simple way to look at it is look at uh, the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go to Norway, you'd find it's doing very well. But it's all because uh, it's a prosperous country, has done well. Historically, it's here. So when you compare the actual achievement of countries today, you would find that many of the countries which uh, do not are not so resourceful and uh, not well endowed natural resources are not doing so well. Mm -hmm. But that is what is called a lagging indicator. These indicators measure what you have done in the past. Mm -hmm. But leading indicators are those which tell you what are you doing today to make you more effective in the future, given your resources. That's a different. And recently, in, we, in Malta, we organized the first Commonwealth Award for Excellence for SDG implementation, which focused on the leading indicators. The what is it that you're doing today will make you move faster towards your goal. So that is the basic uh, difference And the SDG is the, the sustainable, sustainable development goals, the sustainable development goals. Um, and that really is really the basic difference. And when it comes to performance, it's the same thing. You know, if you just look at tourism, let's say, tourism takes many years for it to reach a certain level. Now, if I measure today's tourism, level of tourism in a country, and I reward the, the current permanent secretary for tourism, that would not be fair because this guy may be doing nothing and he's just benefiting from the good work done by his predecessors. So you have to, that would be the lagging indicator, the number of tourists, the footfalls today. But the leading indicator would be what are you doing today to ensure the number increases and it continues to grow. That would be the leading indicator. So performance management should focus on leading indicators and Researchers can focus on the lagging indicators to draw lessons as to what we need to do to really improve so in the future. Yeah, so I think that's the big difference. One thing I was want to get at is the, you know, it's, the, it's the economy stupid kind of yeah. admonishment. But when it comes to performance management, how true is the admonishment, it's the systems stupid? From your perspective, why should governments place emphasis on re-engineering systems that they use for performance management? Right, as I said, the... Problems are pretty well known, mm -hmm. uh, the, the two problems I Solutions are also pretty standard and well known. If you look across the world, countries which focus on systems tend to do better than those which just focus on individuals. An individual can come and, and do some stuff, but it's not sustainable. The minute the individual goes, the entire thing goes with the individual. But... Right from Peter Drucker onwards, all management experts agree that 
80% of the performance of any organization can be accounted for by the quality of systems it has, and only 20 by the amount of number of people. And it should not be surprising. I mean, if you look at famous kings, I mean, Alexander, Napoleon, they were great kings, they had great systems, and the rank and file rose up to deliver, <laughs> conquer for them. So the, the rule of thumb is that 80% of the performance is accounted by the quality of systems. Within the remaining 20% of the people, 80% of it is accounted by the quality of leadership. So therefore, all you need for miracles to happen in governance is a good system with a good leader. Indeed, it is the job of the leader to ensure that good systems are put in place, they are protected and sustained. That is a role of leadership. How can performance management systems help governments perform better? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Professor Praja Trivedi, author of Performance Management in Government, a Primer for Leaders. So, Praja, most government performance management systems suffer from serious conceptual flaws, which you point out. Uh, what are some of the, let's say, four fatal flaws you identify? And more importantly, what can be done to avoid these, um, these flaws? So, Michael, uh, f- these fatal flaws are what you observe where things are not working, okay. right? I mean, the first one, for example, I would say would be to really improve the performance of any organization. What you need is a good information system. I mean, it's common sense. This is, you don't need a PhD for that. Mm-hmm. That if you don't have good information, you can't even start. You know, it's a non-starter, right? I mean, that's like flying a plane without a radar. So you need a good information system. But having good information system is not good enough. You should be able to interpret. If you see the radar and you can't figure out what's going on, that also, you must be able to figure out that this means cloud, this means an object, I need to be like this. So you need to be able to process that and evaluate that information. So you need a good evaluation system. But countries have done this. They've got some information. They are able to evaluate. The fatal flaw is they think things will be done automatically. Mm -hmm. But you need an incentive system. Nothing happens in the world without consequences. If I work hard and I do well, nothing happens. If I don't work hard and I don't do well, nothing happens. And, you know, I'm a human being. I'll choose not to work hard, spend time with my family. So having incentives which need not be monetary, consequences of sorts. And, you know, there's a whole lecture we can have on that. But that's, sort of, I would say, a fatal flaw. So just they feel, oh, he's a public servant, they'll just work. It doesn't happen like that, you know. It doesn't happen like that. Then I would say another fatal flaw. In 2019, I'm surprised. I visit governments, talk to the officials, that in government we give a list of things to do. I'll tell you, Michael, uh, do these 15 things. You come back to me and say, you know, Praja, you'd asked me to do 15 things. I managed to do 12 things. I didn't do the three things. How am I to evaluate your performance? Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe those three things were the critical Essential. things. Yeah. And you did all the dinky little stuff here and there, and then you didn't do the three which really were required for us to do well in, as an organization. 
So therefore, without prioritization, we cannot even begin to say we are doing evaluation. Country after country and government after government, what they do is they just go by list of things to do. And at the end, they'll say, oh, we did 80% of the stuff. But that 20% that you left out was the 80% of what you should have done. So therefore, prioritizing, attaching weights, adding up to 100 is essential. And if you don't do it, in my view, it's a fatal flaw. You can claim you're doing evaluation management, but you're not really. So I think that is essential. In addition, I'm going to give you another typical fatal flaw in the government is simply that I give you or someone gives me why should I put you on the spot all the time? <laughs> you know, let's say I get a target that project, you have to build 700 kilometers of road. And I go to the minister and say, sir, you had asked me to build 700 kilometers that I have been able to do only 680 kilometers. How is my boss to evaluate me? Here I submit to you, if the boss likes me, he'll say, Praja, that's close enough, let's go and have a beer. Mm-hmm. The boss doesn't like me. He'll say, Praja, you know, you're a good man. Your problem is you never achieve targets and write something nasty on my performance appraisal, and that's the end of my career. So this subjectivity mm-hmm. that bosses have in the public sector is a fatal flaw. That's the cause of most of our problems. So unless you agree on deviation, that how we measure the deviation from the target, if you don't do it ex ante, then we create subjective evaluation, and that's no evaluation. Mm-hmm. So that's a fatal flaw is that we do not agree on deviations. How are we going to measure deviation from the target? We may agree on a target that whether 5% deviation is acceptable or not acceptable. We should agree on that. And if you don't, it's a fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. The other, sure. uh, just to continue with the list, would be that we tend to focus on one aspect of the departmental or organizational performance. But we don't go and look at it in a comprehensive manner. You know, you'd find that they'll focus on two or three big aspects of a department. And unless you do a comprehensive, anything that is desirable should be in your system of measurement. So it should include financial, non-financial, long-term, short-term. All these things should be part of that set of things. So comprehensiveness is a very important thing. When you focus on just projects, projects may get done, but this department's capacity to do things in the future will go down. Mm -hmm. And that's not good for the country. So therefore, comprehensiveness, measuring and looking at the comprehensive picture is very, very important. When it comes, that's a fatal flaw as well. So you know, you point out in your in your book that uh, government agencies don't have a clearly defined bottom line. How much of the problems in government can be traced to the absence of the bottom line? And you put out a seven step process that one could follow to uh, create the missing bottom line in government. Can you tell us more about that? Thank you. No, I think, I mean, you've hit the nail right on the head. If you had to ask me, of all the things we have spoken about, this would be the central problem. Interesting. You know, in the private sector, when I say that this company has made $300 million as profit, you agree, I agree, investors agree, the stock market agrees. Not because we trust the company, because that company prepared its account following what is called generally accepted accounting principles. Mm -hmm. Not just that, it also got its accounts audited by an external auditor 
by following generally accepted accounting principles. And then we are reassured that what the number they state is as close to truth as possible, mm-hmm. right? And that's the reason why we trust. But in the government, we don't have that system. We don't have a counterpart. And the beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder. You may say, I've done a great job, but another person will come and just tear you apart and say, no, 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 but you didn't do this, you didn't do that. Because there's no generally accepted mm-hmm. performance principles. Right? Yeah. We just, all of us have, you know, I go to conferences, I ask, you know, so what is performance? Everybody gives a different answer. But in accounting, this would not happen. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say, what's a working capital? Everyone tell you what's a working capital. How do you define assets, liability? Everything is well-defined. And, and we need a counterpart of that in public sector, generally accepted performance principles. So the seven steps that I outlined are moving us towards the generally accepted performance principle. They're based on common sense, large number of countries, top policymakers, on the ground, civil servants, they all seem to agree. Right? To give you an example of one of the steps, Please. and tell me if, if you agree or not, that should be that the agency whose performance we are evaluating should specify its long-term vision, the destination, where does it want to go? Now, who will disagree with that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like Alice in Wonderland. If you don't know where you're going, any path yeah, will yeah, take yeah. you. You've got to know where you're going, yeah. right? So that's mm-hmm. the first step and a common sense step. Second would be, okay, I'm going there. How are you going to get there? So what are your objectives to take you there? So that's when you say, these are my objectives, which will take me help me achieve my vision and long-term strategy. Then I would say, what actions are you taking mm-hmm. to reach that point, right? I mean, you, you know, you've got your destination, you've got a strategy, what actions you're taking to reach that point. And then I would come to the point I was mentioning, which is, of these actions, how would you prioritize? Mm-hmm. Which comes first, which is more important, which is less important? Then another step would be to agree on the deviations. First, you would say, I'm taking these steps. How do I know I'm taking the steps? You need key performance indicators for that. Then once you have the key performance indicators, like 700 kilometers of road per year, then how do you measure the deviation from there? And once you measure the deviation, so in other words, when you follow these steps, at the end, you're able to rate any government agency exposed at the end of the year on a scale of 1 to 100. If you do everything that you promise, you'll get 100. If you do nothing, you get zero. If you do in between, you get in between. So that is the true bottom line. It includes everything that the agency does. It's not about money. It is not about profit. It's about, you know, in government, we we are for, you know, health, education, and, and things which cannot be measured. But we have to deliver those things. Child mortality has to be delivered. Mm-hmm. We have to lower that. Similarly, uh, health, uh, you know, those things have to be delivered. It's not about money, but delivering those things. So the bottom line is just that. And it is doable. Countries all over the world are doing it. And it can be successfully done and has been done. You know, it leads into the next question I have around. Uh, many governments have learned the hard way that there's a big difference between performance management and perception management. Any advice for government executives in managing perception and the reality in this regard? 
That's a very good question, Michael, because that, I think, is a lot of leaders miss that. Mm -hmm. What happens is they focus on performance management and they feel everybody is getting it. And I can cite leaders who have lost elections because they just thought, well, it's so obvious I'm doing a great job. It's not obvious. You need to communicate as well. You have to talk the walk, not just walk the talk, but to talk the walk. I mean, you may be walking, but if you don't convey it and and not convey it in, in, in complicated terms, and that's why having a bottom line, clear bottom line, it's saying, this is what I promise, 100%, I have achieved 85%. People will get you. They'll say, okay, you didn't do 15, that's fine, but you did 85, my God, I didn't know you achieved 85. But if you don't communicate well, mm-hmm. so communication is a very important part of yes. uh, performance management and perception management. Mm-hmm. Another very important part is that we manage performance, but we do not manage the interface with citizens or the, our clients in government. Therefore, you may build the road, but if you don't treat the citizens well, if someone is asking a question, etc., all your good work goes to waste. Yeah. And therefore, it's very important to have uh, manage the citizen interface very well. And countries that have got... Uh, implemented citizens' charter, for instance, grievance redress mechanisms tend to do much better than those who simply say, look, figure it out. I've done this, what I promised. So I think management of interface, which is citizen charter, grievance redress mechanism, and communication is very important. Mm -hmm. You can't simply communicate if you have nothing to deliver, but it's got to be a combination of both. What other tools can be used to improve government performance? We'll ask Professor Praja Trivedi when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Professor Praja Trivedi, author of Performance Management in Government, a Primer for Leaders. You know, as a, as a teaching and practicing economist, I'm interested to understand why did you become so devoted and passionate about performance management and public management issues? You know, Michael, I've been doing development economics since 1969, first course in development economics in my undergraduate and since then, I've just went on to do PhD under some of the finest development economists in the world. I mean, at that point, arguably, I did under Amartya Sen, who went on to get yes. the Nobel Prize. And then I, in Boston University, I had, you know, who's who uh, of development economists. It was arguably the place to for development, even better than Harvard or any other place at that point. Mm-hmm. But I And then I joined the World Bank, worked in a large number of countries, I quickly came to a conclusion as a development economist that in the world, there are only two types of countries. One, where they do pretty much what they say, and in the other, the gap between what they say and what they do is huge. (laughs) And there's no price for guessing which group of countries develops faster. So the only development theory I found which seems to make sense and which seems to be real and validated by facts was that there is no development divide, there is an implementation divide. So you may have all these development theories, which as an economist we do, um, you know, the balance and balance growth, Rostos, 
takeoff theory of development. But ultimately, what matters is closing this gap. In this day and age, figuring out the right policy is the easy part. You know, you Google and you'll get hundreds of toolkits and policy options. Mm -hmm. Try implementing them. So implementation has become the key determinant of competitive and comparative advantage of nations. And that's why I moved. I said, you know, if I just continue to develop theories and there's not pay attention on the implementation and leave it for someone else to do it, uh, that would not uh, work. So I said I must balance it. I've developed as many theories as I could. I've worked for as long as I could. But I must also now incorporate in my thinking the implementation advice. And that led me to to this. You know, it's very important, especially since we're sitting here and you're joining me in Washington, D.C., you you tend to find in this city, and it may be true in other parts of the world, that the the thing that folks, especially younger, aspiring policy makers, what they want to do is they want to do the policy development. And yet everything can fall apart if it's not implemented correctly. And it's not as sexy, give the term, as policy development. But, you know, one thing you did in your work, management, uh, performance management and government of Primer for Leaders, is identify some of the toolkits that will help someone uh, in implementing a performance management system. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about these toolkits. Well, the toolkits is really a fancy name for saying a methodology that works. Okay. So when you, yeah, so it's a methodology that works, and you look not at the country, what were the specifics of that country, but what was the methodology, what was the method of doing it, and then you codify it and say, look, this then becomes a way of doing things, and that becomes the toolkit. Mm-hmm. So in the Commonwealth Secretariat, we have developed toolkits for a large number of areas. To give you an example, that how do you uh, foster innovation in government? Mm-hmm. Now what what from the experience. So the toolkit simply is a, is a manual, a guideline of step-by-step doing and fostering innovation. Similarly for citizen's charter, how do you design a citizen's charter? The concept is okay, the citizen's charter, you know, people might have heard about it, but to do it systematically in a rigorous way and properly, and it could be any country, any department, but what is the underlying core, as I said, the fatal flaws, how do you make sure you don't commit those That is, you do not commit known mistakes, but your own unique mistakes, you know, unknown mistakes. But the ones that have been already committed, you should at least not do uh, repeat them. So that's the toolkit. So we have for almost everything in all, uh, because performance management is not about measurement as we have already agreed. Mm -hmm. It's also about having a good strategy. So we have a toolkit on how do you develop a strategy. They have a toolkit on, of course, performance management, which we call the Strategic Management and Accountability for Results Toolkit, Mm -hmm. which has actually been codified into a software, which at the risk of being immodest, is widely uh, being adopted and accepted by countries which have seen it because it is based on common sense. It Mm -hmm. embodies all the principles that we have discussed, uh, which are there in that uh, book as well, and therefore it's based on common sense, and countries find it reasonable, it uh, applies to them. Similarly, we have uh, a toolkit for ISO 9000, which is quality in government. You'd be surprised. I was surprised till I found, and I actually got two departments uh, in government of India where I worked, ISO certified 
And uh, till then, I thought this was for private sector. Now I know that codifying institutional memory and your processes is a fundamental way of improving government. It's such a simple thing. And then, we, so we, once we had done it successfully, we codified that methodology on steps A, B, C, D you do, who do you get, what resources you need to do. So that's a toolkit. So we have for risk management, we have for um, so the entire gamut of things required to make a government that works faster, better, cheaper, and delivers what it promises. Now, in your context, with, with so many of these ideas, uh, what, what governments have adopted them? And why haven't more governments adopted these ideas? Well, a large number of governments have adopted, you're right. Uh, when I was in the government of India, they, all 80 departments had adopted. Um, uh, as I mentioned, 17 yep. states had adopted, all voluntarily demand-driven, because once you're in government of India, it's a federal uh, structure, so states are autonomous, they're like indiv- uh, independent countries, but they adopted because they believed in it, not because government had any influence on them. It's just like U.S. I mean, the federal government can't dictate to a governor in another state. Uh, they have state-level policies. And it is true that large number of countries, in fact, uh, is surprising. It's nothing to do with the size. Uh, countries from Bhutan, Bangladesh, they are pioneers now. I mean, when I somebody asked me, and uh, some a country like Malaysia started way ahead. But, I mean, we tend to think, and which is true, that New Zealand was a pioneer in new public management. Yes, in yeah. early 80s, they were the ones who really completely reimagined the way government works. And, of course, Bill Clinton in 1993 adopted the government performance or enacted the Government Performance and Results Act, which embodied everything that we knew about new public management and reinventing the government. And since then, many other countries have done it. But this methodology in, a, in a, avoiding the fatal flaws, I'm afraid, is restricted to a few countries. And you ask why others have not adopted. I think it's just uh, the exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, have, we haven't had time. This is all recent. Now the consensus is developing. And in, uh, now that I'm with the Commonwealth Secretariat, I shared this with all the cabinet secretaries once they met in London. After that, everybody wanted to adopt. So it is also a matter of communicating it to the the top policymakers and not uh, not making it complicated. And I think it's now moving very fast, and we, we think this will be adopted by a large number of countries. So, Praja, when we close, uh, where could folks pick up your, your book? Well, this is in the public domain, and I really believe that knowledge has to be in the public domain. And this, uh, they can go to the Commonwealth uh, website. They can go to the uh, the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and that's probably much easier because if they go to the IBM Center's website, it's uh, it's there. Great, wonderful, Prajit. Thank you for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me, and you're most welcome, Michael. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Professor Praja Trivedi, author of Performance Management in Government, a Primer for Leaders. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. 
Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.